Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. And as you're turning to Exodus, um, our family loves the Indiana Jones movies with Harrison Ford. We've probably seen those thousands of times in our lives, and you've probably watched them too in the first installment, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indy goes to Egypt to try and prevent the Nazis from discovering the Ark of the Covenant. Because if the Nazis discover the Ark of the Covenant, supposedly it has magical powers to take over the world. And there's that final scene, and you've probably seen this before, where the Nazi commander is greedy with lust and power to open up the Ark of the Covenant, and he begins to open it up. And because Indiana Jones has read his Bible, he looks to Marion, his girlfriend, as they're tied there, and he says, don't look at it. Close your eyes. Don't look at it. And then I won't, I'll spare you the details because we have children in the room, but there's kind of some 80s special effects of what happens when they open up the Ark of the Covenant. Faces start melting off and things like that. Um, It's Steven Spielberg's imagination of what makes a great movie in the early 80s with some pretty good special effects. But that movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, really has nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant, which we're going to talk about this morning, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we've been in Exodus for a long time, and I want to just remind you that there are three big categories the book of Exodus. The first portion of Exodus deals with the hand of the Lord delivering his people out of bondage. We've seen that. The hand of the Lord delivers the people out of bondage. And then over the summer and the past few weeks, we've been looking at the second aspect of the book of Exodus, that is the word of the Lord giving his law, his Ten Commandments, at the base of Mount Sinai. And now we move into the third phase of the book of Exodus, and it focuses on where God lives, his dwelling place, the tabernacle, the portable tent of meeting. And so as we begin this new phase in the book of Exodus, we've gone from the hand of the Lord to the word of the Lord to now the dwelling place of the Lord. And and God's going to give Moses explicit instructions on how to construct this tent, this tabernacle. And by the way, from this point forward in the book of Exodus, we're going to skip over a lot of chapters because there's just a lot there. And so we're going to try to get done like right before Christmas, Lord willing, but you know that may change. So if we don't go verse by verse every chapter from here on out, um, that's kind of what we're doing. So let's pick up in chapter 25 of Exodus. Let's start in verse 8. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And Roger, can we bring the house lights up just a little bit? There we go. All right. And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. Now, one of the big issues that we've seen over and over again in the book of Exodus is how it points us forward to the coming of Christ. So the book of Exodus is not merely about how God delivers the Egyptians out of bondage and they kind of wander around in the wilderness and they receive the Ten Commandments. Everything in this book points us to the glories of Jesus. And so today, the Ark of the Covenant is all about Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 5.39, he says, you search the scriptures, and that's the Old Testament. Pharisees, you're looking at the Old Testament because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying everything written in the Old Testament is talking about me. So here's the point, the big idea, the main thrust of this passage of Scripture it is this, the blood of Christ is the only way a holy God can forgive our failure to keep his perfect law. The blood of Christ is the only way a holy God can forgive our failure to keep his perfect law. Now, at first glance, you may see, well, Pastor Sean, I don't see anything in this passage of Scripture about Jesus. All I see is a bunch of descriptions about cubits and acacia wood and gold and poles, and I don't even know what a cherubim is. We're going to talk about those things this morning. But it's very interesting. In verses 8 and 9, God says, Make me a sanctuary, a place to live. A tabernacle, a tent. And notice what he says in verse 9. Exactly as I show you. God is being exact in how he wants this tabernacle 
to be built, down to the most minute of details. And as you read the rest of Exodus, you're like, this is so intricate. This is so detailed. Why all the details? And, and the reason why is because God wants it exactly the way that he wants it. So let's ask the question, what was the tabernacle? What was this sanctuary? Well, it was a portable tent. It measured about 15 feet wide by about 45 feet long. And in the middle of the tabernacle was to be this place called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. And inside the Holy of Holies, there was to be, at the very center of that, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you would think that if you were doing this the way that we would do it, and God were giving these instructions the way we would think about it, you think God would start from the outside and work in. I'm telling you to build a tent. So if you wanted to build a tent, what would you do? You'd build the tent and then put the stuff inside. But God starts from the very middle and works his way out. He doesn't even start with the tent. He starts with the furniture in the tent, and the very first piece of furniture he starts with is this box, this holy box of blood, this Ark of the Covenant. It would be made out of acacia wood. And the dimensions, if you don't know what a cubit is, probably about 45 inches long by 27 inches wide by about 27 inches wide. So roughly a box about four feet by two and a half by two and a half feet. Now, we can lose the forest for the trees and all these descriptions about cherubim and poles and gold and, and dimensions and cubits. But what I want to show you for this morning is really when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, there are two main issues, two main images, two main purposes to the Ark of the Covenant and what it was, what it represented, and what it symbolized. So here's the first aspect of the Ark of the Covenant. First of all, the Ark of the Covenant represents the holiness of God who has given his law as an absolute holy standard. So one of the things about the Ark of the Covenant, it screams to us God's blazing holiness and God's law. Now, obviously, it's overlaid in gold, represents the purity, the majesty of God. But notice that there are four rings, two on each side of the box, to put these poles. Why rings? Why poles? What's the point of having these poles? Now remember, God is prescribing down to the very minutest of details how to build this. And so the poles were to transport the ark. Because back in Numbers chapter um, 4 and Numbers chapter 7, you find out that the priests could not touch the Ark of the Covenant. If they touched the Ark of the Covenant with their bare hands, they would die. They really actually even couldn't look at it. So that had to be carried over the shoulder on poles because you could not touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was such a holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Now, Something very shocking happens in 2 Samuel. I don't know if you guys remember the story in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, King David, he goes and he captures the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen by the Philistines. They go capture it back, and they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And so how do they transport the Ark back to Jerusalem? Do they carry it on poles? 
No, they put it on an ox cart. And they transport it with oxen on a cart. Probably tied it down. Maybe even not tied it down. So in 2 Samuel 6, 6-7, this is what we find out. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, does that sound extreme to you or not? I mean, Uzzah appears like a good guy. What's going on here? The Ark of the Covenant is stumbling. And it's about to fall off the ox cart. And what does Uzzah do? I better grab this thing before it touches the ground. So he does what? He even steadies it and boom, God kills him on the spot. Right there for touching the Ark. Seems fairly innocent, doesn't it? Seems kind of a heroic deed to to reach his hand out there and stop the Ark. But he was a priest, and he knew better. He knew that if he touched the ark of God, he would die. So there's a major problem before we even start. Why in the world was the ox cart carrying the ark? Why even set up the problem in the first place? They should have been carrying it on poles, on their shoulders. I love how R.C. Sproul captures this in his famous book, The Holiness of God. Let me just read you a quote from R.C. Sproul. He says about this incident, an act of holy heroism? No, it was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. So the ark represents the absolute blazing holy purity of God. Could not even be touched. That's why there's poles to carry it. But not only could it not be touched by sinful human hands, but in verses 18 through 20, you find instructions about these cherubim. The cherubim were to be made out of gold. They were to be put on top of the ark with these wings overshadowing the mercy seat, and they were to be looking at each other. What in the world is a cherubim or a cherub? Maybe you thought it was a bouncy little baby with diapers and wings floating on clouds or shooting arrows. That's not what a cherub is. What's a cherubim? Do you realize the very first incident of a cherubim being mentioned in the Bible was right after Adam and Eve got expelled from the Garden of Eden? How did God guard the Garden of Eden? Back in Genesis 3.24, the very first mention of the cherubim. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim, what we do know about them, are angelic supernatural creatures with wings that are guardians of God's holiness. And notice there's a, there's a flaming sword that they wield to prevent people to get back into Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden. Other passages in the Bible, uh, Dave read this earlier, Psalm 99.1, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth 
quake. Here, the, the cherubim are equated with God's holiness to where people are supposed to quake before this holy God who, who rides on the cherubim. So there's a lot that we don't know about these cherubim. One thing we do know is they're winged creatures who represent the holiness of God, who represent the purity of God, and they're to be made on top of the Ark of the Covenant with these wings facing each other, and they're to be made of gold. So two images, poles to carry the Ark of the Covenant because you could not touch it with your hands, and these winged creatures that represent God's holiness on top of the Ark. These images tell us God is absolutely holy. He's pure. He's righteous. He's transcendent. That's on top of the ark. That's on the side of the ark. That's how it's supposed to be carried. But look at verse 16. What goes inside of the ark? Verse 16. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, what was that? The two tablets of stone that were the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone, were to go inside the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is a container, not only representing God's holiness, but it's a container inside. It would have the law of God. So I want you just to picture this visually. It's a huge visual picture here. What's the, what's the mental picture you get of this box? It represents the absolute holiness of God. You've got these winged creatures on the top representing God's holiness, and inside you've got God's law. And notice on top of the cherubim, God doesn't tell Moses, "Draw, create a picture of me because I'm going to live there. Now, that would be a graven image. God's, God's powerfully supernatural. He's invisible. As, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 15-16, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glorified. Be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You see, God's presence himself would come and rest on the top of the ark. That Shekinah glory, the, the glory cloud of God would come and descend on the very top of the ark on top of those cherubim that represent his holiness. And inside of the ark of the covenant is the law of God. God's inflexible standard, his Ten Commandments that have to be obeyed. And so everything about the Ark of the Covenant just screams at us, God is holy. His law is holy. Not only is God's character holy, representing the cherubim, but inside of it, it's his actual law, his inflexible, his permanent law, that if you were to break that law, you would die. And this is where God would dwell with his people. Which brings up a huge question. If you're an Israelite, you may be scared at this point. If this is where God's supposed to live, and God is absolutely holy, and he's given me this Ten Commandments that I can never live up to, how in the world am I, as a sinful Israelite, ever going to approach this God? How am I ever going to have a relationship with this blazingly, brilliantly holy God? How can I do it? How, how can I even get near this holiness and not get killed? 
So I said the first part of the Ark of the Covenant is the holiness of God, his absolute holiness, his law is an absolute holy standard. But there's a second aspect of the Ark of the Covenant that's very, very important. The ESV translates it as the mercy seat, which is kind of a confusing term. Here's the second important aspect of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's all about the mercy seat. God provided a way for the Israelites to be forgiven through an atonement in blood. God provided a way for the Israelites to be forgiven. This, this holy, majestic God who is righteous could forgive them through blood. Now, when you think of a seat, what do you think of? A place you sit down. It's not a seat that you sit down on top of the ark. When Martin Luther and some of the um, reformers translated this Hebrew word, they used the word seat. It doesn't mean the place you sit down. It meant more the, the origin or the source or the embodiment of God's holiness and God's forgiveness. Literally, it's more like a lid. A lid. Okay, so think about the box you got a lid that you have to open in order to put the law inside there. And so it was not to be made of wood. It was to be made of pure gold, a pure gold lid. The best way to define that term, I don't like mercy seat because it sounds like something you sit down on. Actually, the best way you probably translate that Hebrew word is atonement cover or atonement lid. The lid of atonement or the cover of atonement. Okay, This past week on the Jewish calendar, the Jewish people celebrated what? Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And that word Kippur means to cover, to cover sins, to cover over sins. And so that, that mercy seat language in the original Hebrew has that idea of Kippur, covering over sin. Now, what was the purpose of the mercy seat? Was it just for decoration? Okay, we got a gold lid on top of the, the box. What's the purpose of it? There's a major purpose of it, and it was only used one day a year. The mercy seat, the, the atonement lid was used one day a year. So I'm going to ask you to turn forward one book. We've got to go to Leviticus to get a better picture of what the purpose is of the mercy seat or the atonement lid. So turn to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, and you will find a title above Leviticus 16 in your Bible that says something like the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Yom is day, Kippur atonement. Day of Atonement. Okay. So what was the Day of Atonement? It was that one day of year where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would do something very specific with that atonement cover, with that lid. What did he do with the lid, with the mercy seat? It was used once a year. Okay, let's read verse 11 through 17. Aaron, he's the first high priest. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of the fire from the altar before the Lord and the two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. That's the Holy of Holies. 
and put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, that is the Ten Commandments, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Okay, so what's going on here? On top of that lid, the high priest, Aaron, would bring the bull in, the blood from the bull, and he would take his finger and he'd smear blood on top of the mercy seat. How many times? Seven times to represent perfection. Then he would take the goat and bring the blood in from the goat, and he would do it again. So what in the world does it mean that he takes the blood of a sacrificial animal and starts smearing it on top of this lid? What's it a picture of? He's covering. He's doing what? He's covering their sins. It's a symbol here of God's justice, God's wrath against sin, the sin of the people being covered, being taken care of, being forgiven. So how could a holy God be approached with this mercy seat and this Ark of the Covenant? Only when you sacrificed an animal and smeared its blood on the lid seven times. So I want you to visually picture this in your head again. Okay, picture the Ark of the Covenant. What's above the Ark of the Covenant? The holiness of God. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The law of God. Can you keep God's law? No. Can you approach a holy God? No. What's in between those two? Blood. The blood of a sacrificial substitute that covers the sins of the people. So the Ark of the Covenant is a graphic picture of God forgiving our sins through blood. And what is sin at its core? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what was the purpose of this atonement lid for Israel? What was this purpose? God is absolutely holy. He cannot tolerate sin. It's represented by those cherubim, those flaming creatures that represent the absolute purity and holiness of God. That's why it's got gold. That's why you can't touch it. It's got to be carried on by poles. Secondly, it, the, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is inside the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's holy standard. Not just His character is holy, but His standard. I've given you my law. And when they fell short of it, when they did not live up to it, when they sinned time and time again, how did God atone for their sins? How did God forgive their sins? Well, there's blood smeared on the atonement lid. 
Instead of God pouring out his wrath on the Israelites on that one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, their sins were forgiven by a sacrificial animal. Instead of the Israelites being killed, an animal was killed. And that blood of the animal was in their place. But why blood? I mean, you think about the Old Testament, it gets kind of bloody. Why all? Last week we saw when, remember last week, Moses threw the blood on the people. Now the priest is going there and taking blood and smearing, smearing blood, throwing blood. Why all the blood? Well, it's nothing new for the Israelites. They've already seen this one time before. Remember the day of Passover? What did God say? Kill a lamb and smear its blood on the doorpost and lintels of your home so when the angel of death passes over, your firstborn son will not be killed. They've already smeared blood on their doorpost. Now the priest is just smearing blood on the, on the atonement lid. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is how God ordained it, the shedding of blood. Now, here's the issue for Israel. This only happened once a day. I mean, once a year. One day out of the year. The Day of Atonement. So all the sins that you'd stacked up for that year, the priest would go in and he would smear the blood and your sins as an Israelite, they'd be covered for that year. But then he had to do it again. And then he had to do it again. And notice he had to do it for his own sins because he was a sinner too. So it was never a perfect sacrifice. It was only temporary. It only lasted a year. This, the priest even had to sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinful himself. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament spends a lot of time explaining how Jesus is way better than that Old Testament sacrificial system of smearing blood on top of the atonement lid once a year. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all, not year after year, once and for all, into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves that we just saw where the priest smeared it on the atonement lid, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what's the application for us today? I mean, we don't have a literal Ark of the Covenant. We don't have a priest that goes in and smears blood once a day on the on Yom Kippur, what does this have to do with us today? You see, we had the same problem that the Israelites had. The living and holy God who created the universe is still absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, pure, and cannot tolerate sin. And that same God has given us his word to follow, to obey, and we woefully fall short of his glory all the time. We fall short of God's glory. We rebel against his glory. We don't obey his Ten Commandments. We, we fail miserably at every turn in, in living up to the standard of this holy God. And so what did God do? 
Did God just say, okay, those humans down there, they're going to just mess up? And did God just wink at our sin and said, okay, let bygones be bygones. Let's just brush your sin under the carpet. It's not that big of a deal. No, God is still absolutely holy. He rides on the cherubim in absolute holiness. He still has given us his standard that we fall short of, his glory. But God provided, like he did for the Israelites, the only way for us to be forgiven. And it's not by the blood of a bull or a goat with its blood being smeared seven times on the atonement lid. It comes through Jesus himself shedding his blood on the cross. Do you know how you could literally translate that Hebrew word mercy seat? Let me, let me give you the most literal translation that you can get for the atonement cover. Literally, it could be called the place of propitiation. The place of propitiation. Like, well, that helps me. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean that God's propitiating? What's propitiation? What does it mean? Well, it means this. That Jesus, when he died on the cross, endured the wrath that we should have taken ourselves. Now, let's stop and talk about wrath because this is misunderstood. What is God's wrath? Okay. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness by men who, suppress, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the Bible is clear that God is revealing his wrath. What is that? What's wrath? Well, J.I. Packer gives a good definition. Let me just give you his. There's a bunch of definitions you can look at, but his is pretty good. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Let me compare two things for you that we must never confuse. There is a huge difference between wrath and rage. Rage is often out of control. Rage is petty. Rage is selfish. Rage flies off the handle. That's not what God's wrath is. God's wrath is an expression of justice that's a settled opposition to sin where God has to punish sin because he is a holy God. He has to execute divine justice. And so when the word propitiation is used, the propitiation seat, the mercy seat, the, the atonement lid, to propitiate God's wrath means that Jesus took that. Jesus took that punishment. Jesus took the, the justice that we deserve. Instead of us having to experience that sacrifice, that justice, that, 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 um, that divine anger against sin, Jesus took it in our place. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't come to him in faith, God's wrath still remains on you. Romans 3, 24 and 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus forth to take that, that justice, that penalty that we deserved in blood so that you and I would never have to endure that. We'd never have to experience that. We'd never have to be the ones that die on the cross, enduring that shame. Hebrews 2.17 
It's talking about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Just like Aaron would go in on the Day of Atonement and take the blood of animals and smear it on the top of that atonement lid, Jesus went that once and for all, died on the cross. And think of it this way. His blood is smeared on our dirty hearts so that we would never have to experience God's justice. We've been forgiven. We've been cleansed. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I am so thankful that when God said, I love you, he didn't just say it from heaven. I love you. He didn't send us a cheesy Hallmark card with some writing in it. I love you. Here's a Hallmark card. How did God prove his love for us? Did he just say it? No, he did it. He sent Jesus to die in our place because he loved us. When God loves, it's more than just saying it. He demonstrated it by sending his one and only son to die on the cross for us. I want you to, again, picture this in your mind, this holy box of blood, the Ark of the Covenant. Think about all the elements of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? There's the holiness of God above with the cherubim. The place for the poles because you cannot even touch it with sinful hands. God's law inside that you and I fall short of all the time. So you and I, we stand before this holy God. We stand before this pure, holy, absolutely righteous God who's given us his word, and we fall short of it all the time. And you and I are hopeless, we are helpless, we are hell-bound in our sins. So how can you be forgiven? How can you be accepted by this holy God? What comes between God's holiness on top and God's law and beneath? A sacrifice of blood. What becomes between an absolutely holy God and our sinful lives? A sacrifice of blood in Jesus Christ. Just like the atonement lid was the only way that the sin could be forgiven by the priest smearing it seven times, Jesus is the only way God has given for us to be forgiven. He's the only mediator. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. through For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who did what? Gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I want to be very specific this morning in who I address. Because there's many of you that have listened to this message, and I want to address you. Let me first address those of you here today that you would not consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus. You know in your heart of hearts that you have not been forgiven. You know that you're still guilty. You know that you stand separated from a holy God. You've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. And if you were to die today and you were to face God in judgment, you would die in your sins and you would be eternally separated from God because you haven't had Jesus as your Savior. So what should you do? 
If, if that describes you today, what should you do? You need to cry out to Jesus to forgive you, to cleanse you. Confess those sins. Tell Jesus that you've sinned against him. And guess what? When you confess your sins and when you own up to your sins and you cry out to Jesus to save you, what does he do? He stands with arms open wide, ready to forgive you. So you must go to the cross of Jesus and ask for forgiveness. That may describe you here today. Let me address a second group of people. There may be some of you here today that have done that. You know you're saved. You know that you're forgiven. But you are very insecure in your salvation. You live every day wondering if God loves you. You wonder if you've sinned so far that you're outside of God's grasp. And so you're overcome with defeat. You're overcome with guilt. You're overcome with despair. How could God love me? You lack the assurance that you're forgiven. I know in my head I'm forgiven, but I don't feel it. What should you do? Well, look afresh at the cross. Look at the wonderful cross and, and, and just remember, remind yourself that it was there that God proved his love for you. If you ever doubt God's love for you, just look at the cross. God didn't send a Hallmark card. He sent Jesus. If you ever doubt God's love for you, just look at how God proved it for you at the cross. He loves you. He died for you. Rest in the security that your sins are forgiven. Look afresh at Jesus this morning who died in your place. Let me address a third group of people here this morning. There may be some of you here today that you claim the name of Christ. You've, you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. You, you would say you're a Christian, but you are living a lifestyle in direct disobedience to God. Sometimes it's called backsliding, but you're not living the life that you should in light of being named a Christian. You're living in disobedience, but you claim to be a Christian. What should you do this morning? Would you also look at the cross and ask yourself, how can I continue to live in sin when Jesus did that for me? How can I continue to disobey him when he showed his love for me by dying on the cross? Would you come to your senses? Remember the prodigal son? The prodigal son was sitting in pig slop, eating, eating pods of pig slop. Whatever that tastes like, it's probably not good. And the Bible says he came to his senses, and he got up, and he went home. And what did his dad do? You fool, I disown you, don't ever show your face here again. Is that what the dad did? Well, the dad runs and grabs him and throws a party for him. So there may be some of you here today that are prodigal sons and daughters who need to come to your senses, get up, and return home. And guess what? Your father meets you to receive you because Christ died for you. That may describe you this morning. Let me just address a, a fourth group of people. There may be some of you here today. I know all this Christian stuff. I know Jesus died on the cross. I know the gospel. And you give lip service to all of that. But you are so full of pride in religion and legalism that you think you've got it all figured out but you are so full of pride. What do you do this morning? You get on your knees in utter humility and you look at that cross again and say, how dare I ever be religious or prideful or think I can figure it all out when Jesus died there for me. 
So what I'm saying is no matter who you are this morning, you and I, we all need the cross of Christ. We need the forgiveness. We all need to look at the wonderful cross again. He's the only way that we can be forgiven. We need the blood of Jesus to come between a holy God that we've fallen short of his glory and his holy law that we break all the time. What comes between those two things? The blood of Jesus on the cross. The priest would smear the blood seven times over the atonement lid. What we need is the blood of Christ, not just to be smeared on our hearts, but we need to be covered in the blood of Christ to forgive us of all of our sins. So would we all today bow in humility and look at that old rugged cross afresh and find hope, find forgiveness, find cleansing in only what Jesus can bring. He's the only way He's the only one. Would we all express our love for Jesus this morning by looking to his cross? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, there may be many of us in this room that know our hearts all too well. We know the sin that hides there. We know what has come out of our mouth this week that's displeasing to you. We know what thoughts we've had. And all of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, we've, we're all unclean. We've fallen short of your glory. We've not kept your word. We've failed. But God, I am so thankful that you didn't leave us there in our failure to try to figure it out ourselves or try to do something to make it better because we never could. You proved your love once and for all by sending Jesus to die. So Jesus, we thank you this morning. We honor you. We love you. You're our only Savior, your only way. Please forgive us. Please wash us. Please cleanse us. We all need to look at the wonderful cross this morning. We all need the blood of a sacrifice in our place. We all need Jesus. So would we leave this place today with the hope of our sins being forgiven, the hope of eternal life, the hope that only comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just pray if there's anybody in this room today And they know who they are. 
I don't know who they are, Lord, but you do. That have never, for the very first time, cried out in their heart and said, Lord, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I've been doing it myself. I know, Jesus, you're the only one that can save me. Please save me. Please cleanse me. Please forgive me. Lord, would you, would you do a work today in those people's lives, and would you save sinners today that need to be saved? Lord, we all need you. We all confess you. We love you. May we live this week in light of these truths. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.